Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to run a restaurant today, given what we've been through over the last 12 months. Sometimes it must feel like your destiny is totally out of your control. And in fact, my hat goes off to anyone who is working in the hospitality sector. This week on the podcast, I have one such individual. His name is Rick Campbell. He is the co-founder of Cricket, an Indian concept restaurant with sites in Brixton, Soho, and more recently, the old television centre. Soho One is actually not far from our office. It's one of my favourite places for lunch. Rick and I discuss how he and his co-founder Will started the business in a shipping container in Brixton, how they raised capital, how they grew the business, and then more recently, how they've coped with the lockdown. Rick and his team have been unbelievably resilient. They've adapted by changing their menus, they've ramped up their online delivery systems, and invested in so-called cloud kitchens, which are new to me. Uh, and now, the thing, the future is bright for cricket. Rick was great. Talking to him made me incredibly excited about the prospect of eating out in Soho again. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Rick Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Rick, how did you start your career? I started my career in, uh, at Deloitte in corporate finance, transaction services, uh, my, my professional career. Um, I would say I started my business career at university when I was heavily involved in events and promoting, and I learned a lot in that respect. But uh, my professional career started at Deloitte in 2010 in corporate finance. You say you started your business career at university. What were you doing at university? What events were you, you putting on? Um, mainly student nights and electronic music nights. It all started when I was a hungry first year, wanting to make it a bit of extra cash and guest listing, all that kind of stuff. But soon uh, escalated in year two when I met my business partner. I was at Newcastle and he was in Northumbria. And we started doing our own things. And, and yeah, we built a, a very successful events business up over the next two years whilst managing to get a 2-1 in my degree just about. <laughs> but it was a real eye-opener. And, you know, at 20 years old, I think we did a lot. I learned a lot of business lessons early on in that. And uh, I've got the entrepreneurial bug from the start. So, so then you left university and joined Deloitte. How long were you at Deloitte for? And you say you're in corporate finance. What were you focusing on there? Yeah, so I, I was at Deloitte for just about three years, doing my ACA whilst I was there. I got one of eight jobs in transaction services. We weren't uh, focused on any particular industry, kind of worked on a lot of different industries, including oil and gas and hospitality, financial services. Um, yeah, I did a few interesting hospitality uh, deals working on casinos and, in fact, a little bit on the Soho House Group towards the end. So that was fun and kind of inspired me to do what I'm doing today. But, you know, it was a, it was a good three years. It allowed me to sort of settle in London, you know, paid well for a young 22-year-old. And I learned a lot, got to do a bit of traveling. And I got my ACA out at the end of it, which certainly set me up for what I'm doing now as well. Okay, so let's introduce Cricket, which you co-founded. What is Cricket and what, what, is, the, what is the purpose? So Cricket, spelt with a K, uh, is a collection of modern Indian restaurants. Uh, we use British ingredients, uh, but the spicing is authentic. Uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of like a more modern, lighter interpretation of Indian food. Um, founded by myself and my business partner, Will, who was actually at Newcastle with me but went on to be a great chef in London and then lived in Mumbai 
for a couple of years where he was inspired by the the cuisine and and so when I left Deloitte I was about about a year out out of Deloitte before cricket happened and did a few bits in between there almost went back to the corporate world actually because I was a bit disheartened by lack of progress on my hospitality career but uh we began in a small shipping container in, in Pop Brixton as a, as a pop-up and uh, yeah, and things have evolved massively from there. Mm-hmm. So take me back to that moment in the, in the shipping container. What, were you, um, what was your sort of unique selling point and what did you feel that was the value proposition of cricket by then? I would say it was the fact it was certainly our products. You know, we, it, Indian restaurants kind of, first of all, you don't normally have two white guys running an Indian restaurant. It's quite an interesting uh, and certainly not from a chef perspective, but I think, you know, we were, like I said, we're using British ingredients, higher quality ingredients to elevate traditional Indian dishes. And, you know, Will was, Will was very talented. So, um, yeah, trained in London, but experienced Mumbai. And I think the setup in something like Pop Brixton, where you're part of more of a community and you're starting out, you can just focus on your products and the service and we really didn't have to worry about everything else in terms of setting up a standalone restaurant everything that comes with setting up a standalone restaurant it's a different ball game so when you pop up in something like pop brixton it's very similar to box park and people will know these kind of setups um you are able to just focus on your products and your service and we just got our heads down and worked well i think we were doing 90 hour weeks when we first started but um yeah, uh, you know, six. So it sounds like Will, your it sounds like your partner brought the sort of recipes and the sort of chef. Would it be fair to say, therefore, you brought the sort of the finance? I would say I brought the general business acumen, um, finance from from Deloitte, but my my events business at university certainly helped. And I say now, you know, if it, if it I even say now, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for Will, we you know we wouldn't have anything. But if it wasn't for me, we might still be in the shipping container. So. Mm. Um, you know, the combination of us both is um, very important, I think. And we've both grown to know each other's side of the business very well as well. So how long were you in the shipping container before you started to think about expansion? Well, we started to think about expansion pretty early on, actually. But realistically, uh, we were in the shipping container for a year before we opened our site in Soho. And then uh, we had another year in the shipping container before we then closed it and found a permanent site in Brixton. So the pop-up was open for two years, but we had our permanent site in Soho within a year of it being open. And what were the, um, I mean, obviously it sounds like it was a busy time, 90-hour weeks running a restaurant. How did you find time to map out a growth strategy? Well, in all honesty, early doors, we didn't really think about that. We just were so intent on doing a lot of customers and making customers happy with the products and the service. So didn't really think about that. It was just working hard, putting the hours in physically and mentally. You know, it was only when we started to generate interest from people like, oh, you know, what are your plans? Uh, Are you looking for a permanent site? That then, you know, the investment side came and at which point we had a few more staff working for us and I wasn't pulling that kind of sort of hours. So I was able to find the time. Um, and how does that work? I mean, was it a case of investors, potential investors coming to you, coming to eat in your pop-up and saying, hey, look, this is a great concept. We want to expand. Or was it you going around shaking the tin saying, hey, look, this is my great concept. Look at the look at my revenue numbers. I would say more of the former, to be honest. We, we had, you know... We served a lot of customers over that first year and we had a lot of people coming in. 
saying, if you ever expand, I'd be interested in investing. You know, we had one Australian guy who offered us £100,000 on the spot. So we didn't really have to go and look too hard. Uh, but when we did look for investment for the Soho site, it was important that we, mm-hmm. that we chose the right people. And why did you choose the Soho site? Why did, what, was the, what was the sort of process behind moving to sort of central London? Well, the initial plan was actually to find a, a bricks and mortar site in Brixton. I mean, that would make sense. That's where we started. The pop-up was not long-term and we wanted to use our existing customer base in South London. So, But we just couldn't find the right property. And the property market in 2016-17 was still all over the place. You know, There's a lot of silly deals on the market and we just couldn't find the right property. And I think if you can't find the right property, you've got to be really careful that you use your head and not leave with your heart and end up with something you shouldn't have done. So, um, and... Yeah, this uh, this property on, in Soho, uh, our site on Demon Street, came, kind of came out of nowhere, really. It's, it was uh, part of the Shaftesbury's estate, and um, it had come back on the market after falling through uh, via someone else. And they were looking for young, innovative concepts, and we were one of those. So they kind of approached us and said, would you be interested? Um, we hosted a dinner for the head honchos at Shaftesbury in the shipping tent at Brixton. They loved the food. So it's more of a case of, you know, if you – if you can agree that we can agree the correct terms and it's yours. But previously it had actually been on the market and had about 22 offers on it. And whoever had been on it before had fallen through and they didn't want to go back to the market and go through all that again. They want to bring someone in different, someone different in and that happened to be us. So it was um, timing and a bit of luck, but also, you know, we, we bring, I believe you kind of make your own luck as well. So. And tell me about the fit out process, because I've been to um, your site in, well, actually both your sites. Um, mm. And the thing that strikes me about cricket is the extraordinary interior. Who was sort of managing that process of fitting out the restaurant? And, you know, what were the challenges associated? Well, again, that's another, uh, our designers, uh, the designers for our all three of our restaurants, including Soho, um, uh, are called Run for the Hills. And, and we actually met them in the shipping container, you know, one of the girls that worked for them, um, she had a great dinner. She introduced herself. She said, if you ever think about opening a permanent site, let me know. And I always keep those sort of contacts. And lo and behold, a year, a year later, we were fitting out and we went to tender to, to six designers, including them, and, and they came out on top. So, um, yeah, I do really believe in, in making connections throughout the journey and, and retaining those. They hadn't done too much restaurant design before, which I think is why it's so special that they've done something different and and unique we had to deal with a little bit of issues on the sort of durability and practicality side because of their experience but we've grown with them over the last three restaurants and they understand that a lot better and and also because of they've done such a great job on cricket they've had a lot of interest from other restaurants so you know we've both done well out of it i tend to manage the builds myself along with a project manager it's something i really like doing yeah i like to be involved in all of that so uh, but we have our brand and our, our look and our vision now. So it gets a little bit easier each time. Um, but we're always looking to make each restaurant slightly unique and um, and tailored to the customer. And so you had um, uh, one restaurant and one pop-up. And then I know that you were looking to expand even further and managed to secure a site in Television Center. Now, I wondered, you know, how does one secure a site in such a sort of iconic place? There was a bit of a story behind that, actually, because we we, sort of, we saw the television centre when we were just a pop-up in Brixton. And although they liked cricket, they didn't see us as sort of big enough, perhaps, or the right brand for the, the unit that we're actually in now. 
And I remember saying, well, I would like to go in that unit. They said, no, um, that's, we need an all day dining concept or something like that. And so you can have one of the ones on the back. And I was like, I'm not interested in the back. And that, nothing ever happened. And then uh, a year later, we opened Cricket Soho and that just took off. And um, lo and behold, we ended up having another conversation with them. And we, we got the unit that we discussed previously. So, yeah, you're right. It's an iconic building, uh, a new centre of gravity for West London, I think. It's got um, still got a way to go, and there's a lot of construction going on around it, but we're really excited about that site and the future uh, of that area. I mean, staying on that, is it a different concept? Because your restaurant in Soho, it's hugger mugger dining. If you yeah. hopefully you don't, um, you're not offended by that expression, but it's hugger mugger dining. That's very different. That that sort of concept dining is quite different to the feel that you get in in television centre. So was that a quantum leap for you and and your designers, or and how did you sort of navigate the difference between those two dining experiences? Yeah, yeah, they are slightly different dining experiences. Like you said, Soho is small, bustling. You know, you're at the kitchen counter with the chefs. Uh, it's Soho, uh, very different, but. Um, you know, White City equally has the open kitchen. It's got a big communal dining table in the middle, like our tables downstairs. We use a lot of the same materials in the design that we use from Soho. And the menus are, um, you know, we've got our signature dishes on both. So there is a fair bit of crossover. And obviously, we're trying to balance building a brand that's not chainy because we don't like the C word. But then, uh, you know, we drive value from using the cricket brand at each restaurant and then being similar. So it's a fine line between the two. But, uh, you know, I would like to think that the food, the level of the food is the same everywhere you go. You can, you know, if you try, try the Carolyn fried chicken or the Samphai pakoras in White City, Soho or Brixton, they should be the same. And like I said, you, you, do, you do kind of know you're in a cricket when you're in any of them. Mm, right. Um, now, Rick, 2020 was a difficult year yeah. um, for anyone in restaurants or in hospitality. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could take me back to that moment, probably this time last year, so March 2020, when the country went into lockdown. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a year to this week, actually. So we're a year on. And if you told me a year ago that we would be still be closed in 12 months' time, I think I probably cried. But uh, a lot has happened since then, and we haven't been closed the whole time, uh, which is... I guess a positive, but it was a really w- strange situation back in March because when we closed, decided to close all the restaurants on that Tuesday. I think we were kind of one of the earlier, one of the first restaurants, but everyone kind of closed that week. Obviously, the bookings and the walk-ins and everything just dropped off a cliff. Very different to the second lockdown, where oh yeah, we're going into lockdown and we were fully booked up till half ten at night. So the customer sentiment changed very much. So from being sort of scared and and, and not coming to the restaurants and and going probably um, and leaving london going to the country and hiding for eight weeks versus the second lockdown where people just wanted to stay and eat out and uh you know we, we closed the restaurants pretty much full so uh very different but yeah those first eight weeks were very unsure we really didn't know what was going on we didn't make any rash calls like making all our staff redundant which a lot of uh restaurant processes did because they didn't know about the furlough scheme coming in and we kind of sat tight and, and watched um, but it was a very concerning time and I spent probably the first three weeks with my head buried in my laptop and on the phone uh, trying to rescue the business and wondering what was going on. I like a lot of business owners, I'm sure. But, you know, the announcement of the furlough scheme and suspension of business rates uh, were massive support schemes for our industry 
And, you know, we gradually realized that, you know, we might be all right. And, and when we came back in May, we started our delivery business. We'll come back to the delivery business, but what what did you um, what were the conversations with your investors? I know you have investors and you have backers. Yeah. Um, what were those conversations that you were having? Were your investors happy to stand by and swallow the revenue for however long it, it, it would have taken? What were the investors' aspirations at that time? Well, I, I don't think they had a choice really. Um, no. We just have a single single investor, White Rabbit Fund. White Rabbit Projects, um, run by Chris Miller. He's the ex-commercial director of Soho House. And he is backed by um, a few individuals. But uh, they, they've been amazingly supportive. And they've, they're restaurant and hospitality focused. So it wasn't just our investment or our, our business that was in, in the same situation. So, you know, there was not really – we didn't really have a choice. I think it was more conversations with the bank of getting the correct support from them. You know, the, the Siebel's loan. The, the correct level of support and and because of our close relationship with Nat West and our director over there, I think we were able to get funds quickly. Um, you know, everybody knows that margins and restaurants are tight. You know, if you're running twenty or thirty percent down, you're in trouble. If you're running a hundred percent down, there's only so long that can go on. We had a little bit of money in the bank, but we've always been on a bit of an expansion mission, so we've always always been tight. You know, mm. um, so. Yeah, investors were our investor was incredibly supportive, but also there wasn't really much choice. Uh, we think we just we had a good trading history across three sites, and that helps. I feel sorry for any restaurants who had just started within that last six to twelve months because you know you really don't have proof of concepts, and and therefore unlikely to get further support from your bank or investor. Maybe, um, and we weren't one of those. And how about support from the government? Are you able to be, um, you know, critical or indeed constructive on on government, both local uh, and national um, government support for your business? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've used the word unprecedented a lot, haven't we? And I, I think it's it's been incredibly difficult for the government or any government that, that was in. You know, we can criticise the current government as much as we want, but I don't believe that any other government would have done much different. And there's been failings across governments all over Europe and the rest of the world as well. So, But I would say that the three levels, the three main elements of support that have been massive to us are, of course, the furlough scheme, albeit service charge wasn't included in that. So actually many hospitality staff were getting around 50 to 60% of their wage, not 80. So that's been difficult. We've had to top up certain people with cash that we don't have. The VAT reduction from on sales from 20% to 5%, amazing. But again, you need to be trading. So if you're not trading, it doesn't make any difference. And then the business rates is massive. But we, you know, we also know that the business rates, yeah, so we had zero business rates for the last year and it's just been extended for another three months and then reduced um, for the rest of this following uh, this next tax year. But we also know that business rates have been crippling for the restaurant industry and hospitality in general for the, however many years. And the scheme, it needs overhauling. It's archaic and it's, and it's the numbers and, you know, the, the kind of rates that some businesses are paying are mad. All three of those have been amazing supports and, you know, we're very grateful. But it's still never enough. And just the general overheads of a restaurant require us to be able to just, we need to trade. So we're very much looking forward to being getting back open in May. Uh, you know, it would have been almost six months of closure since November. And at the moment, we're getting various grants, depending on the size of our restaurants and uh, location as well. And some of these have been easier to access than others. Lambeth Council and Brixton have been great online forms. Uh, other councils, uh, not so much. 
uh, still pen and paper. It's just madness, really, in this modern age. But uh, yeah, kind of mixed feelings. Generally, obviously, could have done, uh, could have survived without the support that we've had. But you always need and want more. How did um, Eat Out to Help Out, the famous Eat Out to Help Out uh-huh. over the summer, um, affect you? Was that a was that a sort of bringing forward of demand? Did you see a bringing forward of demand? I kind of think it was it was mental, really. The things people do for a tenner, <laughs> 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 because that was it. It was, it was fifty. I think it was fifty percent off food up to a tenner. So it was mad, absolute madness. Um, you know, we were we already are very busy restaurants, so. Did it affect us too much? I mean, yeah, we probably got a few more early bookings, people eating at five o'clock like they normally wouldn't and, and, and eating later at sort of half nine, ten, a few more extra tables then. We're normally busy anyway. So I think um, it was good. But would I say, should we do that again? I, I don't think we should do that again. I also think it's really susceptible to fraud as well. We have um, great systems in place and, and accountants and everything is done proper and official, but with something like this, you know, it's 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 so open to fraud, and uh, I'm not sure it's the right thing going forward. Again, I think it was innovative and, and cool at the time, and and you know, probably a good thing. And uh, looking back, but do we need it again? Not so sure. Hmm. And you touched on the fact that you've switched or you've managed to to move a lot of your business online with home deliveries. How much of that do you think, well, how much has that compensated you, number one? And number two, how much of that do you think will stick? And how many, you know, when we go back to normality, how much um, do you expect to sort of continue that online delivery? Well, I'm hoping uh, a lot because the numbers are uh, incredible, really. But we expect a slight drop off because obviously when things open up and people come out to restaurants and want to eat out, but it's here to stay for sure, more than it was before. We were approached by Deliveroo and everyone prior to the pandemic. And we always said, no, 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 you know, our food's not right for it. We don't want to do it and kind of turn our nose up it and for the right reasons. But Indian food lend itself to delivery it, or is it different? Well, traditional food? Indian food does, but, our, but cricket is a little bit more elevated and refined. So... Uh, we have developed uh, a delivery menu which has some of our signature dishes on, but is more curry focused. That's again, like you said, travels well and just more home comfort and traditional. So that also means that you know you can't. It doesn't cannibalize people coming to the restaurant as well when we do open up. You know, you re- you can't get the full cricket restaurant experience at home, and I think that's great. So yeah, we've developed a small quality menu that travels well, is comforting. And I think, yeah, we know it's been really successful. I mean, we, we, we started doing it out of Cricket Brixton in May last year and Cricket White City. We didn't do anything in Soho because it was just a ghost town. And, um, you know, we were almost doing as much. I think we were about doing as much revenue as we would normally do if we were open as a restaurant at one point. And, and really? um, yeah, and then when, when everything opened up on the 4th of July, we couldn't do that out of the restaurant and open up as a restaurant. So, we had to get a, a cloud kitchen down the road and we've been operating there ever since. And now we've got another one in East London. I'm opening one in Tooting at the end of this month. So we've got a very successful delivery business. Sorry, Rick, is a cloud business? Is that a, a cloud kitchen? Is that the same as a, a dark kitchen? Yeah, uh, it's quite funny, all the terminology, because uh, people are moving away from dark kitchen now because it just implies like a grimy, windowless, yeah. you know, horrible <laughs> working conditions. Uh, so... Um, which we, you know, there are those. Well, we don't use them. Um, we, you know, we, where our staff work is very important to us, and so we actually partner with this company that 
buy old uh, takeaway sites and put a couple of units in with some space outside. And it's just like almost being working in the restaurant, um, not these massive like hubs where you've got 60 kitchens and 100 drivers outside and no windows. And so, yeah, dark kitchen, cloud kitchen, delivery only kitchen. Uh, I think there's another one as well. They're, they're all the same, but uh, yeah, I prefer to say cloud kitchen. To so you're going to keep those sites open, those those cloud kitchen sites open to, yeah. to, to serve the demand online, yeah? Yeah, so we've got uh, one in Clapham, uh, one in London Fields and opening one in Tooting at the end of this month. And then we also run delivery out of the White City restaurant when it's open. Um, Soho, no, it doesn't have the capacity and it's not really on brand for Soho. Um, so yeah, it's here to stay. We're very proud of what we've created. Uh, you know, the, like I said, the numbers are mind blowing, and uh, the margins are great. You know, we're, we're setting up these delivery kitchens, cost us ten to five to ten grand to set up, and they're making money in month two. So um, it's been a, a savior, really. Yeah, in all honesty, I don't know where we'd be without them. And just staying on your Soho site, and as we look forward to the potential unlock of the economy and when we'll all be able to go outside, I mean, those kind of sweaty Soho nights seem quite a long way off. Are you going to open incrementally? Can you open your Soho site incrementally uh, with sort of social distancing? Or are you going to have to sort of keep it shut um, until sort of it will be sort of one of the last things that opens? Um, no, so yeah, all restaurants can open outside space from the 12th of April. We won't be doing any, uh, any of that. Um, Soho and Brixton, not possible. Uh, a few seats outside doesn't make, doesn't make it work. doesn't make, um, hmm. the economics don't work. And, and so we'll be opening a socially distant Soho on the 17th of May. Um, but you know, if, if we stick, if the government stick to their roadmap out of this, then within five weeks after the 17th of May, so whenever that is in the middle of June, we should have no, we should have zero restrictions. And as soon as that day comes, that day comes, we will be operating business as usual. Um, whether people like it or not, I'm afraid. I think if there's no restrictions and we're following uh, what Boris has said, then, you know, hopefully we'll be back to normal by mid June. Well, I can't wait for that moment. But are, are you how I mean, this is a maybe a hard question to assess. But can you assess the sort of psychological element of people eating, you know, hugger mugger like in your Soho restaurant? Yeah. Um, do you think there's going to be a sort of drop off in sales as a result? I, I like to think I'm not being naive, but I, I really don't think so. I think it's going to explode. I keep mm. joking to people that I'm going to have to put um, tables and chairs in the toilets, <laughs> in mm. the washrooms. Um, because people are going to want to eat so much. So I, I don't think so. I think for those people who are still nervous, just they won't come. But I, I think there's going to be an explosion. And I think that domestic tourism is going to make up for a lack of uh, international tourism as well. And everybody loves Soho. My favorite area of London is Soho. And I think people love piling into Soho in the daytimes and in the evenings. And uh, I think it will be, uh, I think it should be great. Well, it's a very optimistic prospect. And looking to the future and, and, you know, maybe beyond this year, the potential growth opportunity for cricket, um, where would you like to see the business in five years' time? Well, yeah, five years. I haven't, I haven't done five years, but I've done three years. <laughs> uh, I, I think, uh, I believe that when by this time next year, our business will be twice the size as it was pre-COVID. So we're currently operating, or we currently have three. Pre-COVID, we had three restaurant sites. Right now, we have three restaurant sites that are obviously closed, but uh, three delivery sites. 
And we've just bought a basement bar next door to Cricket Soho, which will feed our hour and a half to our virtual queue, which is great. Um, we're working on uh, an international site in Amsterdam. Uh, we're working on a fourth site in London. So, yeah, in, in a year's time, I'd expect our business to be twice as big revenue-wise. Uh, three years' time, I'd like to think that we have built the story from the restaurants to the delivery to an international site to maybe a franchise deal as well, perhaps a management contract with a hotel group. So we add all these string to our, strings to our bow and kind of kind of wrap it up and go, this is the package. You know, I think it's an exciting one as well. And we're not one-dimensional. We're offering you know lots of things. So uh, yeah, what in twelve months' time, I'd be happy if we were twice the size as we were pre-COVID. In three years' time. Perhaps three times the size would be a well. It's an exciting prospect. And Rick, have you when you reflect on on some of your experiences? It's not always healthy to dwell on one's disappointments or failures. Um, what advice would you give to yourself? Um, you know, as you went through the journey of founding cricket. Oh God, that's a difficult situation. I critique myself. Mm. Um, it's an existential question, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, maybe let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it. What advice would you give to uh, anyone who is sort of in their job? Perhaps it's at a law firm or an accountancy firm like you, who has that entrepreneurial bug and is sort of fed up of of the the daily grind. Who uh, and they're looking to do something uh, entrepreneurial. Yeah, because what advice would you give to them? There's so many of these people, you know, and I've met so many of them along the way. Oh, how did you leave? How did you get out of professional um, professional environment? And you know, I, I truly believe that you only excel at what you love. And if you don't love the job you're in, then you're never going to be the best. And I always wanted to be the best at whatever I did, and I felt like I wasn't when I worked in the city. But you know, it was really valuable experience, and I had an ACA to back it up. So if things went wrong, I could always fall back on that. And I think if so, if you're in that position, then it's worth the risk. Um, but, you know, don't be deluded. It is such hard work. The hours you have to put in mentally and physically should not be underestimated and the sacrifices you need to make. And, you know, I, I really believe that one of the biggest things I've always said is that I wouldn't ask any of my staff to do anything I haven't done or wouldn't do. And, and, and we've lived with that from the start. And I think that's what's helped build such a great business uh, with a great team. So that would be my general advice. Uh, but a lot of people look at us running a great successful restaurant group and go, oh, look, you know, it's a gold mine or and it's easy and it's fun. And, you know, it is fun, but and it's certainly not easy and it's certainly not a gold mine. <laughs> um, but so don't, you know, people need to be realistic about things as well. I see. Well, Rick, I think we both agree that the future is bright. I hope you meet your target of two times by next year and experience some growth after that. Uh, Rick Campbell, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Rick Campbell from Cricket. If you haven't been to Cricket, I would urge you to book a table and go. It is delicious. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not like it and subscribe to it and let your friends know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.